Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith podcast with Michael Lane. If you're enjoying our content and would like to help us keep making more episodes on this podcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And while you're on the website, make sure to check out some of the other things we got going on, like our specialty programs. We've got one in marine biology, which is an entire marine biology course down in the Florida Keys. And it's great for students ages 14 and up. We also have our biblical archaeology tour in Israel with archaeologists Dr. Stephen Notley. That's coming up very, very soon. So make sure to check those out. And we also have our bookings calendar open. So if you're looking for a speaker to come speak at your event, church, group, school, whatever it may be, make sure to get in your request in right away. And finally, if you have enjoyed a particular series on this podcast, or you want to go back and look at a particular episode, our courses page has every single series we've ever done on the podcast nicely organized in its own course page. And sometimes there's a few extra little downloads and things you can use if you want to go back and study a particular series or share it with a friend or a family. All these links are going to be down in the description if you want to refer back to them after you're done listening to today's episode. And with that, thanks for being here and I'll let Michael take it away. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. I want to tell you a story that just recently happened. I teach a lot of places going around to uh, teaching college groups and speaking around in different places. My wife has done this for, for more uh, a couple of decades or more, where when I speak sometimes to groups, she gives me treats to, to hand to the, the people who are listening. I guess in a way she knows me pretty well. Maybe she thinks that they need these to stay awake or something. But she made these uh, little turtle cookies. They're chocolate chip cookies with pieces of caramel and also they had pecans in them. And so um, she gave me a container to pass to this group of college students that I was speaking to. And I gave them um, this, but I also brought something else. Before I even started teaching, I brought a picture frame that I bought many years ago. And it's one of those picture frames that has four spaces. You can put four different photographs in one picture frame. And I, um, I brought this with me. Now, what I did, I bought this many, many years ago, decades ago. And what I did is um, after I got home from buying this in the store, I took out the four models that were in there, the four images that came with the frame, and I inserted into the four spots uh, four different photographs of my wife. Now, all these were taken when we lived in the Bahamas. They were old photographs, but um, there's two of them before we got married and two of them after we got married. But all of them are taking place in the Bahamas. In one picture, um, it's, I've got a picture of her standing on uh, Blackbeard's Tower on New Providence, an old pirate history thing. And in another picture, I have her um, standing on Pro um, uh, the island called uh, Paradise Island today. And the famous lighthouse is in the background. And she's standing there on the rocky shore with this in the background. Another picture I have of my beautiful bride is her just before we got married. And we were on Paradise Island again. And I had her just walk backwards towards a, a big group of hibiscus bushes and a lot of flowers were in bloom and I took her picture inside that and then there's another picture of her just coming home from school one day um, just before we got married and she was outside the house and um, standing by a pole that she hung laundry on and she was just sort of standing there but and in this white dress and I just I uh, thought, wow, that's so lovely. I'm going to take a picture of that. So I took those four photographs, put that in there many years ago, but I brought this with me when I went to teach. 
And so I handed out the cookies in the cookie container. And at the same time, I said, just going to let you see, the, this is the person who makes all these treats and makes these, these cookies for you. So you get a chance to see what my wife looks like. This is the queen of treats. And so I passed this around and passed her picture and they're all looking and, you know, um, they got a chance to see her. Now, why did I do that? Why did I bring my, my, um, this picture frame of my wife I actually had to do with this lesson? That we're doing here today because it's the same lesson that I taught them and it's on why are there four Gospels now the reason I brought that is going to become clear um, my purpose for bringing that picture frame with my four photographs of my wife is going to become clear as we go deeper into this lesson but the title of this lesson in this series that we're doing on basics of apologetics is why are there four Gospels so Let's just begin with a short prayer just to get started on this. Father God, I ask that you just have your Holy Spirit just, just do the teaching here. Help us to see uh, what puzzles many people and that you would, your Spirit would just clear this up for us as we explore why there are four Gospels and not just one. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. A few decades ago, I got an email from some person I'd never met before that I'm aware of, but he found out that I was working at this Christian camp and he heard that I was speaking on things on apologetics and having to do with evidence for the Bible. Now, he sent me a lengthy email that had, oh my gosh, there were, I can't even begin to count how many what he said were contradictions found in the four Gospels. And his whole premise of his email, the purpose was, these are the reasons I cannot believe in the Bible and I cannot believe in Jesus as, as the Lord, uh, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. It's because the, out of the four biographies that we have, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of these um, have so many contradictions and so many differences. They're not identical to each other. And because of this, um, I can't put my trust in them. Because if the four biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can't get their story straight, why in the world should I trust this? That was the email. And he went through and he listed a whole pile, oh, 25, 30 different things on this. But as I was reading this, I was very sad because he was obviously making a major mistake about these four Gospels. Now, I don't know how, where you're coming from or what your background is, but if you've ever wondered, why do we have four Gospels instead of one? I'm going to answer that. Or, why do some of these Gospels contain certain stories and the other ones don't? I'm going to answer that. Or, how come this Gospel mentions this event and describes it this way, but in this Gospel it's described in a different way? The same event, but it's not told exactly the same. Why is that? Was, was one making a mistake uh, compared to the other, or, or what? We're going to take a look at that. And... Things that often, uh, a question that comes up frequently that I um, face when I'm speaking and talking about these four Gospels, uh, from critics in particular, and sometimes even Christians will ask this too because they just don't know. I don't know why this isn't preached more commonly from the pulpit, but they will ask me, why do we have four Gospels? Why are there four Gospels in the New Testament? And why are they even in the arrangement of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Obviously, they would say it's not alphabetical. So why is this? Why do we have these four Gospels? And so I want to answer that question today. 
as we go through this, because this is an important question to understand why God gave us four Gospels instead of just one. And to get a good, solid answer to this. And the answer, actually, why there are four Gospels instead of one, or what some people will erroneously say, this is not correct, but they will often say these four biographies, because I want to show you today, these are not biographies, but they will ask, why are there these four biographies in there, and why are, what are they all about? Why don't we just have one? Well, the reason for all this can simply be answered by prophecy. Going back to the Old Testament, actually, we're going to look at the Old Testament prophecy, and we're going to see something else taking place in the New Testament. Um, we're going to, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, and because he sees something that's really amazing. And then we're going to look in the book of Revelation by the Apostle John, and we're going to read something that he sees. And we're going to compare these two things, because believe it or not, they both see something they both see something. Apparently, it's the same thing because they're describing the same thing, slightly different order, but they describe the same thing. So what was it that Ezekiel and John saw? Well, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Looking at verse 1 of chapter 1, and again, I'm going out of the English Standard Version uh, in this lesson, which is just a word-for-word -word translation, very popular, very easy-to-understand translation. So in Ezekiel 1, Chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, who's writing this? This is Ezekiel, the prophet, contemporary of the um, time period in the prophet Daniel. And he says, I saw visions of God. So right here, first question I want to ask, what's he seeing? He tells us specifically a vision of God. Now, I want you to skip down for a second. Go down to verse 28, down at the bottom, and he's sort of coming up to the end of, of this description here as he's talking about it. And in verse 28, the second part of this verse reads, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Again, let me ask again, what is he seeing? the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he is seeing, it says before, at the beginning of this chapter, he sees a vision of God, the glory of God is what he's seeing. And when he sees it, he falls down. So he's seeing, he sees the likeness of the glory of God, visions of God, and he falls down. Actually, that's a, a thing of faith, falling down. One thing that sort of bugs me today is how too many of us Christians will often sing songs, choruses and stuff in churches and things where we talk about like, you know, Jesus is our buddy buddy and he's our really close friend. And oh, if Jesus was just walking through the door now into our church building or something, oh, I'm just going to go get up out of my seat, go running to him and give him a big hug. Really? I mean, we sing and we act like that, but really, you really think that's what's going to happen if Jesus was to just walk into your presence right now? I'll tell you what he did, because this was a holy man of God. This was Ezekiel, uh, a prophet of God. And we, when he saw the, the vision of God, when he saw the glory of the Lord, what did he do? He fell on his face. He fell down. Actually, fell on my face is what it refers to. That's actually the definition for the word worship. 
Um, no, he didn't break into song. He fell on his face. That is the literal definition of the word worship. And he fell down. And I think the same thing would happen with many of us. But now, after we got this, now we've established what Ezekiel is seeing. He is seeing the, the vision of God. He is seeing God. Now, he, let's go back up to verses 5 and 6 because now he describes it. And look how he describes it. In the midst of it, this vision he has, in verse 5, in the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. Four living creatures, it says. And this was their appearance. Now, this next statement is very important. They had a human likeness. Now, stop there for a second. What's he seeing? A vision of God. What's he describing as it as? A human likeness. Wow. Now, in John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well that God is spirit. Here we're seeing, though, a description of God. Ezekiel is describing what he is seeing and a human likeness. And it says that each had four faces on each of them, uh, four, um, had four wings. So we're, we're seeing what he's describing. Now, let's move down to verse 10 just to, to save time here. Let's go to verse 10 now as he describes some more. It says in verse 10, as for the likeness. Now, we've already established the likeness was like human. But he says the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The forehead, the face of a lion on the right side. The forehead, the face of an ox on the left side. The forehead, the face of an eagle. Did you catch this now? There's four. We're seeing God, and we're seeing God in a human likeness with four different faces. Likenesses of four different faces. Human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Those four things. Now, that's what Ezekiel sees. Now, let's go into the New Testament. So this is much later. Um, let's go to Revelation chapter 4, verses 6. Uh, starting at verse 6, we're going to read through this here, and we're going to see something that John sees. Now, the first couple of chapters are the, the letters uh, that the God is giving to these churches. But then John is given this remarkable experience that he gets to see something, and he describes it. This is amazing what he describes. So Revelation 4, 6, we'll start there. And we read, and around the throne, stop there. Around what? The throne. He is seeing a throne. Who sits on a throne? A king. So he's seeing a king-like image here. Continuing. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. Okay, now that is an amazing thing. Do you, did you catch this? What John is describing is the exact same thing that Ezekiel saw. Ezekiel told us exactly what it was. It's a vision of God. Here, we're seeing... In Revelation, John is seeing the throne room of God in heaven, and um, around the throne are these, these creatures that um, have been created, 
and are showing four different images. And they hover around the throne, as it says, also, they, um, they says the four living creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. By the way, that's the best description you ever come across with God. We often think and focus on, well, God is love. Now, God is love, true, but the better description of God is what these creatures are saying. Holy, holy, holy. How can they say it three times? Because there's three in one in God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why it's like that. But the whole point here, John is seeing the exact same image, basically, that we see that Ezekiel saw. So, we're seeing these creatures that were created by God, and Ezekiel said that it was a vision of God, and that, that these, these creatures uh, were a vision of God, and they showed the likeness of a human. Here we see a throne room with a throne, and these creatures here, and it's the four same creatures, uh, four-faced creatures, the four, the four things. So, what are we seeing here? Okay, just to make it really simple, we're, going to com we're comparing two different things. And as a school teacher, whenever you're going to do any type of a comparison of two or three things, you make a, uh, like a, a T-chart if it's two things. If it's not, you make three charts into it, three comparisons. But we have two things, so let's make it into a T-chart. We have Ezekiel's emphasis on one side. We have John's emphasis on the other. Ezekiel tells us that his emphasis was that God has a human likeness. That's what he sees. So he has a human likeness. John, on the other hand, is showing the throne room. God is a king. He is holy. He is almighty. He is the king. So the thing, the thing is, we're seeing the same image, yet we're seeing four different aspects or facets. When I got engaged, I gave my wife... Um, eventually, because we were living in the Bahamas, couldn't afford a ring on what I was uh, being paid in the Bahamas at that time. So um, she had an uncle, fortunately for me, who owned a jewelry stop, uh, jewelry store in um, Cudahy, Wisconsin. And we flew there. And as soon as we got off the plane, uh, Denise's mom and dad took, took us by uh, their car before we even went out to eat. I mean, I was hungry, but on a flight all day and all morning long. We go straight to the uncle's store and he had um, helped me pick out a, a diamond ring for her. And so one of the first things I did when I got to his store and they showed me the different rings and he told me, I can give you a really good deal on this, this diamond here and in a gold setting. And so he gave me this and I remember picking it up and looking at it through the light. And those of you who have diamond rings, or probably all of you have seen diamonds, you notice that gems are cut and they have what we call facets, different sides. They show different sides. And as the light hits them, you can see sometimes different colors or things. But you can see the facets. Four things. The thing is, it's one stone, but it has multiple facets. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing. And what are we actually seeing? Well, God, as Ezekiel tells us, has a human likeness. Who is that? Well, God is three in one. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which one has the human likeness? It's Christ. What is Ezekiel and, Jesus, or, and John seeing? Our visions of Christ. 
aspects of what Christ appears to look like is what we're seeing here. And he, um, the whole aspect of God, not just wrapped up in human flesh like is when Jesus came in the four Gospels and ministered, but we're getting to see, like even the heavenly realm, the four different aspects or facets of Christ. Now, I told you at the beginning of this lesson, I handed a picture to my, my students and um, as they were eating the cookies, and they were looking at this, and they got to see four different photographs of my wife. At this point, I turned to them and I said, now, when you looked at my, the, uh, the picture frame I passed around, how many of you, how many of you in here actually thought I married four different women? Of course, not one hand went up. I said, so all of you realized that I'm look, you all were looking at the same person. And they're all nodding, yeah, yeah. Some people audibly said, yes, there's, it's one person. It was Denise. And I said, I showed you four different aspects. One is her exploring with me. Another one is just gazing upon the flowers and to me the, the beauty of the flower and the beauty of her face. And another one, she's very happy after school one day um, over by this pole. She was swinging with an arm, uh, rotating around this pole. And I had to take a picture of her because it was just so beautiful in this white dress. It just, she just stood out so much. And then another picture of us as um, we were on Paradise Island by the lighthouse. And it shows an aspect of my wife that she loved to explore things and um, actually go out to different places on different islands and things and explore. We, we took our boat out to see things like this. It, it showed my wife in four different aspects, but the thing is, it's one person. It was just Denise. These visions, and that's the reason I did this. It's, there wasn't, I didn't pass out the, the frame just for the students to just take a look at my wife. I used this as the lesson, and now they're catching, oh, that's why he sent his picture, uh, these pictures around in this one frame. Well, the same thing can be applied to this lesson here, as we're talking about why there are four Gospels. These visions that John and Ezekiel are talking about are four distinct faces or portraits, portraits of Christ. Now, a portrait is not the same as a biography. Here's a mistake that critics and often even Christians will sometimes make. Well, they will call the uh, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, biographies. They are not biographies. If you have your Bible right now, I would like you to try something. Find the book of Mark. Just turn in your Bible till you find the book of Mark. The first page, put your finger where you have the first page of Mark. And when you have done this, keep your finger there. Now go to the first page of Luke, the next Gospel. And so you're going to separate, in other words, then, in between your two fingers, one at the beginning, one at the end, and now you have your hands um, on either side, put your hands together with the pages in between, and you can see how thin the book of Mark is. Now, look how thin that is. In this case here with my Bible here, it's 28 pages. And of course, this is going to depend upon the size of the font and what type of font they're using. But here it's 25 pages in my Bible right here in front of me. Now, you might have more, might, might have a few less. The point is that I'm making here is this. These are not biographies. Let me point out a couple of biographies that I have here before me. I have here one 
This is a book called um, A Biography of uh, Doc Holliday, The Life of Doc Holliday. Now, if you're not familiar with who Doc Holliday is, um, there's the movie Tombstone. He was a friend of Wyatt Earp. He was at the sh uh, shootout at the OK Corral back in, I think it was 1876. Um, but anyway, we have um, some author here has actually written a book, has researched his life and stuff like this. And in this, it starts off just in the first few pages as I turn here. It talks about why um, the Doc Holliday's parents talks about them before he's born. Where were they living? What was their life like? Then it talks about his birth. The next thing it talks about him as a toddler. As a toddler, there's a few, uh, a little bit of information, a couple of pages on this. When he's, when he's a child, oh, here's a lot of pages. This goes through number of pages dealing about him as a child. After the child, we get into the preteen years, and there's a, a section of, the, of this biography on that. And then it goes into his teen years. And, oh, my gosh, there's a lot here. And, and about being in the Civil War, because um, he was living during that time in Georgia. And here, here's a whole section here of um, Doc Holliday serving in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. After this, we have him now, you know, he's now an adult, and he, he's going into med school as an early adult. He, he studies dentistry. That's why he gets the name Doc. And he, it talks about how he opened up practice there, and he moved to Valdosta, um, Georgia. And it's, there's many pages. This is just going dozens and dozens of pages all about his early life. Um, and then he moves out west. He has a disease, they called him a lunger, which is tuberculosis. Um, today, as we call it, he moves out west, goes to Texas eventually, um, and he sets up an office. And here he's in Dallas. And, and you get the idea. We're, we're going on and on. We haven't got to the OK Corral yet with um, Wyatt Earp and stuff. But now here's a whole section of that. And here's a whole chapter just on him at the OK Corral. A whole chapter, numerous pages. Oh my gosh, how thick this is. And then what happened to him after the OK Corral and about him um, being chased, him and Wyatt Earp and others being chased and how they were looking for um, these these uh, organized crime members and stuff. And oh, and finally it talks about how his disease progressed and can progress until finally he was uh, committed and, he, and then finally we have his death and, and where he was buried. Now that's a biography. Here's another biography. This one here is of Lord Nelson, Admiral Horatio Nelson. And it then, again, it starts off with his early life, goes through his, uh, his parents first, then his birth, then his childhood and toddler and stuff, his preteen years. Finally, he goes to sea. And then it's all about the different aspects of his life, different commands that he had of different ships, et cetera, et cetera, until finally the Battle of Trafalgar where he is killed. And then there's a whole chapter of, of him being buried and stuff. Um, or here, here's another biography of John Newton. Oh, I love this book. This is one of the greatest books I've ever read. John Newton, the guy who wrote the story, um, uh, the poem, the song we have of Amazing Grace. He wrote over 200 hymns. Um, and the thing is, here is his life. And it talks starts off with his parents. Talks about the neighborhood where he lived in that uh, Captain James Cook, the famous British explorer, lived in the same town. Here is um, Captain William Bly living in the same town just down the street. Uh, he was from the Bounty. And oh my gosh, it has all of his life, his early life, his, his um, childhood. It, it goes into his preteen, his teen years, et cetera, et cetera, until he's an adult. He's in the slave trade eventually. Um, he's actually 
kept captive um, over in Africa and made like a slave himself. It talks about this and his voyage back and how his conversion took place. And then his life of trying to get ordained as a minister. I mean, this goes on and on and on. His wife eventually dies of uh, breast cancer. And then he lived a little longer, um, got involved with William Wilberforce and stuff, but eventually he too died. I mean, that's a biography. Here's one that most people never heard of. This is William Dampier. I know you probably are sitting here, who's William Dampier? He was a pirate living in the latter of the 1600s, early 1700s. And he was a pirate, but he was also a naturalist, what today we call a biologist. Sort of sounds familiar when people <laughs> hear that. A biologist who turned pirate. Um, well, <laughs> it's an interesting story, but again, it goes through all, we don't know much information about this, but. Uh, this author has researched him and given us his whole life story. I mean, I read, I try to read at least one biography every single year. When you pick up a biography, there's certain categories that are required to be a biography that fit the literary characteristics of a biography. You get into the birth, the at a, uh, the, the toddler stage, the adolescence, preteen, teen years, um, uh, early adulthood, and then throughout their adult and all this. Now, the reason I'm telling you this, look again at the book of Mark. Mark doesn't have anything about Jesus until he's 30 years old. And it only covers three, maybe three and a half years of his life. How do you call that a biography? All four Gospels do not fit the characteristics, the literary requirements of being a complete biography. Yet that's what people often assume they are. They are not biographies. They are four different portraits of one person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I mean, the Gospel of John, half of that Gospel is basically what Jesus does in one week. How do you call that a biography? But that's what people do. And so they often will call these biographies, and because these are a little bit different from each other, people, critics and stuff, just reject all four of them because of this. But they're four different portraits. That's what they truly are. I'll give you another example here. I had uh, my youngest daughter, when she was in school, had to write a research paper. And it was for, a, I think, a history class or something like this, something she had to prove, a historical event, and talk about it. She chose, this is a public school, she chose the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in writing this paper, and I read it before she handed it in. I thought it was an excellent paper. She did a great job on it. And the thing is, she used, as four of her major sources, she used other sources. Uh, she used some Roman writings and, and others and stuff. There was quite a few in her bibliography. But in this she had these four Gospels. Well, she got a very low grade when she got the paper turned back from her teacher. She came home very depressed. She told me about it and my wife, Denise. And one of his things that he wrote on there, one of the reasons was you can't use these four Gospels because historically, as for a history project, because these biographies uh, vary so much, they're untrustworthy. And just for that reason alone, he marked her down considerably grade-wise. Well, I made an appointment to see this, this teacher. Uh, my wife came along and we went to see this. And when we got there, I 
um, asked him again exactly what's the problem and he says he can't use these four biographies uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for a source, yet she is relying heavily upon these four biographies. I said she's using other sources. Yes, those are fine, but the basis of her of her paper is based on these four biographies, and there's flaws in them. They are not reliable because they are different from each other. Now, we're sitting in the classroom, and I, I actually, when I came into the room, I, I was ready for this. I pulled out, because he had books sitting there, I pointed over to a couple of different books on the shelf. And I said, you see those books there? Those are biographies. And he goes, yeah. And I said, do you know what makes a biography a biography? Well, it tells the life of a person. Exactly, I said. And I said, and pulling one of these out and looking through, you can see the um, early childhood, um, the birth, the childhood, uh, preteen, teen years, et cetera, et cetera, adult until you get to the death of the person. All of this is described their entire life. That makes it a biography. I said, and I had my Bible with me. I said, now, look here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't fit this. These are not biographies. I said, these are portraits. They're four, uh, four different facets of the Messiah, of who he is. And the reason we have four is because they came from a prophecy from the book of Ezekiel. I said, your reason for knocking her grade down was based upon the assumption that there are four biographies that are unreliable because they vary from each other. I said, you are mistaken. Respectfully, I'm telling you, you are mis mistaken on this because these do not fit the category that you put them in as biographies. They are not. They are four individual portraits of the Messiah focusing on four different aspects. Well, he didn't somewhat change miraculously and, you know, angels started singing and everything, but he did alter her grade and give her an A eventually for the paper. And he, he <laughs> I could tell he wasn't too happy with my educating him about what these Gospels are. But the fact remains, he didn't get it, and a lot of people don't. I hope you get it. Do you? We have four Gospels, four likenesses of Christ, the Messiah, for, if I use the word, representations of the Messiah. Now, how does this work? What do, we, what do you keep talking about? Four different facets, four different aspects, four different portraits. Look at what Ezekiel and John saw. What were the four things? A lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man. That's what we see. And that's the order that John describes them. John describes them first as the lion, then the ox, then the man, then the eagle. Ezekiel had to order different, but he's talking about the human aspect. And he's talking about, this is going to be with the, the Messiah, the human aspect of God, and it has to do with a prophecy, but he will be human. So when the Messiah comes, he's going to be human. That was the main focus here. John is telling us, we're looking at the king on the throne, and he puts the order slightly different. Lion, ox, eagle, and man. Now, let's just talk about this really quick. These are the four aspects. These four images represent four different pictures of the Messiah, different representations. And I'll tell you, if you've ever tried to figure out why is the why does this Bible, why does the the book of Matthew have this um, say the birth of Christ, yet Mark doesn't and John doesn't? Why does only 
Matthew talk about like Herod trying to kill the, the children in Bethlehem. Why isn't it any other ones? And I remember having that teacher discussion. He said, he actually brought that up. He said, they're not reliable because only in one does it include, I mean, he had obviously read these. Only one includes the story of uh, King Herod killing the children. So he says, obviously, it didn't, really didn't happen because the other three don't talk about it. And I was like, you're totally not reading these correctly because these are not biographies. They're not biographies. They're portraits. They're representations. So let's take a look. And let me show you here in just the last couple of minutes here, in the last 15 minutes or so, let me explain to you what these are and how clear this is. Once you understand what these things are, what these Gospels are. And this is the reason there's four. Because each Gospel is represented, if you catch it now, there's a lion, there's an ox, an eagle, and a man. Let's go to the lion first. Now, what's a lion? I think of a lion, and if you think of a lion, you had to describe a lion. I asked this to my, my students just the other day. I said, when I say lion, what immediately comes to your mind? One student immediately uh, raised his hand and, and said, uh, I, the king of beasts. I said, exactly, that is it. The Messiah will be a king. The lion is the king of beasts, the Messiah will be a king. So that is one. Then I said, what's an ox? Immediately, a student shouted out really quick, it's a servant animal. It's a beast of burden. It does work. I said, exactly. So there's another gospel. One's going to, call, one's going to be all about his kingship. Another one's going to be about how he's going to be a servant. There will be a servant Messiah. That's, that's the second aspect, the second portrait of the Messiah when he comes. A king, now a servant. Then I said, there's the man. This one's pretty obvious. The Messiah will be human. He will be a man. That one's very obvious. So one of the Gospels emphasizes all about Jesus being a human. And then we have the fourth one. And I asked him, I said, what do you think an eagle represents? They had to sit, and I had to help them with this one a little bit, because a lot of times in this modern age culture, we don't catch this. But remember, this was written in ancient times, 2,000 years ago. And I said, in ancient times, what did people think about with eagles? Finally, someone said, eagles were worshipped. And I said, yes. And you worship gods, right? They would worship these idols as gods. And I said, eagles throughout ancient history, many cultures considered eagles a type of a god, probably because they soar so high up in the atmosphere, um, not even having to struggle flapping their wings. They can ride on the, the convection currents coming up of the heat of the earth as the sun shines on it, and that heat rises up, and they can actually ride on that with their massive wings and, and the, the structure of their feathers. So the eagle facet represents that the Messiah will be God's. Thus, one of the Gospels will be all about the Messiah. When he comes, he's going to be God. Now, did you catch that? One Gospel is going to be focusing on the kingship of the Messiah. Another Gospel is going to focus on the servant Messiah. A third Gospel will talk about the human and focus on the human representation of the Messiah. And then the fourth one will be all about that this Messiah will be God. There you go. Now let's just hit these really quick in order and let me prove it to you. Let's go to the lion first. Matthew's gospel is what this represents. It's the first image, Matthew's gospel, and he, the Messiah when he comes, will be the king. The lion is the king of beasts. He will be a king Messiah. Did you ever catch that Matthew begins his genealogy of Jesus? And he goes back, he starts it with what? Abraham. He only goes as far as Abraham. And that's where it starts. 
Why that? Abraham was the first Jew, the first, actually the first Hebrew, not first Jew, but the first Hebrew. Thus, he is a descendant of the Hebrew race. He's also fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant that God promised Abraham. This person, this Jesus, is actually a direct descendant of Abraham. So it fits and answers the original covenant God made with Abraham. Um, then from Abraham, it goes to, the, to David, King David. And then what do we see? David, in this genealogy, begets like Solomon and Rehoboam, and it goes through all the kings. We keep seeing king, 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 going through Jehoshaphat, Ahaz, um, Jotham, there's Hezekiah, there's Josiah, Manasseh, and others. And, and then, um, you know, it, it, you keep going, and then the names get more obscure to us, and finally you get to Jesus. Um, and if you look carefully, it's um, he's the son of Joseph, but Joseph did not beget him because his his father is the uh, the Holy Spirit, but he is a descendant, the king, the kingship. We see the bloodline of Jesus being the legal king of the Messiah, or of the the Hebrew people. That's what we see here. Matthew is the one who gives us this. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the son of Joseph. Um, not begat by Joseph, but he is a descendant of Judah, and thus all the kings. It fits into this. Matthew is the one that gives us a birth account. Why do we get a birth account in Matthew? Well, the birth of a king is important. That's noteworthy. So we have the birth of the king. And so we have that one. It's a little bit different than the one in Luke. Why? Because it's focusing on the kingship. It focuses on the kingship. We have in the Matthew account the story of Herod. Who is Herod? He's a king. What's Herod trying to do? Herod, a king, is trying to kill another king, the King Messiah. That's going to be in Matthew's gospel. It's not found in the other ones. It's found in this one. Um, we, we see that the, the, remember the Christmas song we sing at Christmas time? We three kings of Orient. Well, they really weren't kings. They were magi, but they were rulers and stuff. But we often called them kings and we portray them as kings. And they've often been called that kind of thing. Well, the thing is, where do you see this? Which four gospel are you going to come, are you going to find this? You find this journey of the magi, the three wise men, or how many there were. But the wise men story, that's going to be in Matthew, like kings coming to worship a king. So we see these kind of things standing out. Also in Matthew's Gospel, we get the long detail of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus is talking about the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 and uh, 6 and 7, how does he refer to things? The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is given to. The kingdom of God is for. He keeps talking about the kingdom of God. The kingship. The kingship of Jesus stands out in Matthew's Gospel so strong. Not only that, you get to chapter 13, you have the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Oh my gosh, we have the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25. What's this about? The return of the king. And I'm not talking about some uh, movie dealing with rings. We're talking about the king returning, King Jesus returning. So we get this long and detailed description and a parable dealing with it, all coming out of Matthew again. And I love, I love how Matthew ends his gospel. Which gospel has the Great Commission? Matthew. Why? Who makes commissions? Kings make 
commissions. People in uh, on thrones make commissions. So where do you see it? In Matthew 28, 18, we have authority being given by a king to the subject. So the Great Commission is found there. Oh, there's so much more we don't have time to go through. I'm just trying to show you a summation of all this. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah's tribe was symbolized, symbolized by a lion. And he is the king of kings. Matter of fact, what does Matthew 2, 2 say? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's all about the kingship. That's Matthew. So Matthew wrote his gospel focusing on the aspect, on the facet of the gem, if you will, or the representation of Jesus being king. Now, let's go to Mark very quickly here. In the book of Mark, we have the second animal. That's the ox, which is a servant animal. Ox, a beast of service, a servant. The Messiah will be one who serves man. Mark's portrait, and it's the shortest of the books, it's the uh, of these, these portraits. Mark's portrait is as a, of a servant Jesus. You notice in Mark, there's no genealogy. You ever wonder why? Here's the reason. A genealogy of a servant is not noteworthy. It's not important. Thus, it's not there. He's focusing on the servant aspect. Everything as Mark is writing is focusing on that facet of the gem of Jesus, who he is, as being the, 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 the servant, Messiah. You notice that Mark carries no Christmas story. Not in there at all. Why? Who cares about the birth of a servant? It's not noteworthy. He doesn't have it in there. It doesn't fit the facet of the portrait he's giving us of the Messiah as being a servant. What does Mark do, though? Mark emphasizes the works of Jesus, the activities, the actions of Jesus. Mark tells us more about his works, about Jesus' works, than any of the other, th the other three. He gives us more about what Jesus did. It's the longest on his work, yet it's the shortest gospel. But there's more about what he does in Mark than in the other one. Matter of fact, a key verse from Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title, but to be served, or to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark's gospel. So when you read Mark's gospel, or if you're thinking about something having to do with the works, it's probably focusing on works of Jesus and things, it's going to often be found in Mark because that was his, his facet. Let's go to the, to the next one. Uh, we had the human, the man. That's the gospel of Luke. And so the Luke's gospel, his portrait is showing the facet of Jesus, the representation of Jesus the Messiah being human. I mean, really, who better to write it than Luke? Luke was a physician. Who knows the human aspects better than that? And what he's writing about is the perfect man. He shows us a portrait of Jesus being the true man. Now, because we're focusing on the human aspect, we're going to have a genealogy in here. Because people have genealogies. So there is a genealogy. It's in chapter 3. And it takes us back not to just David, not to just Abraham, where does this genealogy start with? Adam, the first person, the first man. 
Jesus is a direct descendant of Adam. That's why Luke shows this. Isn't this cool? I mean, I'm not ready to just jump out of my, my skin here. I mean, I'm just, this is so interesting when you understand what we have with these four Gospels. He's the first man. He's a descendant of Adam. Thus, he's a true member of the human race. Oh, yes, he's totally God, but he's also totally human. Luke gives us what? The birth account. Here at Christmas time, we read often from Luke, the Christmas story and stuff, because the birth of the Messiah is important to show that he is human. You see, the Samaritans were under the impression, going back to the woman at the well, John chapter 4, and she says that we believe that the Messiah, actually the Samaritans called the Messiah, the Taheb, that, um, and when he comes, that he would just appear. He was just miraculously going to appear. But no, 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 he's going to be born. And Luke gives us the birth of Jesus. Matter of fact, he even gives us the birth of his cousin, the forerunner, John the Baptist. He includes the family interaction, human family. We see this, the family aspect uh, of the relatedness between Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary. Luke gives us this virgin birth. He tries to describe it, but he can't. He, he, it, it's very vague because he obviously, no one is able to understand how does, the, um, how does Jesus, how does the Messiah become totally human? Because he can't have a human father and a human mother. Now, he has to have a human mother because to represent and die for the sins of man, he has to be human. That's where Mary comes in. That's her role to provide the human aspect. But the father, it wasn't Joseph, it's the Holy Spirit. Luke tries to describe this. It's very hard to understand because I'm sure he didn't quite understand it either, but he's given the information from God to put it down in the best way we can understand it in our, our minds. Do you know that Luke also gives us the shepherd's account? Which of the four gospels has the shepherd's Christmas story? It's gonna be Luke. Why Luke? Because shepherds are human. And it fits into this aspect. Also, to tell you something else fascinating about shepherds. In the Old Testament, who are some shepherds? Well, there was Nabal. He was very rich. Abraham was a shepherd. He was very rich. Jacob was a shepherd. He was very rich. So in the Old Testament days, the shepherds were very, very wealthy. They didn't live in the cities. They lived out in the countryside. That's where they were. But by the time the New Testament comes around, Things changed. The rich people now live inside the city. Shepherds, which used to in the Old Testament days, were very elevated in the social stature, uh, social order. They were very high, if not the highest people, um, you know, around kings and stuff. They were very wealthy people, very powerful people. But by the time the New Testament comes along, shepherds had totally reversed and had fallen to like the lowest of the low. Matter of fact, um, in some of the ancient Jewish writings, it tells us the Jews used to pray uh, during the time of Jesus and um, uh, during that period, that they would pray, uh, Father, um, a husband, when she, he finds out his wife is pregnant, part of one of the prayers that they would say frequently was, please, God, don't let my, my son be a shepherd. Shepherds were portrayed now at the time of Christ as being the lowest of society. They were considered robbers and thieves, the lowest of the low. Yet who does God appear he didn't go to the kings and show the kings and the princes when he was born. He announces it to the shepherds that the Messiah has come. Salvation for even the lowliest of people. How cool is that? 
Luke's the one who gives us this, having to do with the human aspect, the human need. Luke tells us more about the pathos and the emotions of Jesus than we see in, in the other Gospels. He gives us this information. So he focuses his whole facet, his whole portrait, is the Messiah will be human. And his favorite title, like in Jean, uh, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man, he, he, that was Jesus' favorite title, the Son of Man. He is totally human, yet he's totally God. Which takes us to the last one, the eagle. The eagle in Ezekiel and John's image, what they see. The eagle, as we said, represents God. So the Gospel of John, we see this magnificent eagle creature, and the Gospel of John is focusing on the deity. I mean, think about this. Eagles are often portrayed in ancient times as being miraculous and, and able to do like things like deities and stuff. They were worshipped as gods. Uh, Isaiah 40, 31, But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Run and not be weary. Hey, that's not human. Walk and not faint. That's not human. To be able to sail up in the sky, that's not human. Those are things having to do with deities. That's what they used that and talked about that. These are divine characteristics. Thus, the eagle is a symbol of the divine. Thus, John's portrait is the Messiah will be God. John, more than any of the other gospel writers, shows us more about the deity of Jesus than the others. That's his focus. That's his facet. He is forever showing that Jesus is God. Uh, just look how it begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is talking about the Creator God. Did you catch that? This is talking about Jesus. And John tells us that Jesus is the Creator God, made all things. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, all correlate the same thing. Jesus is the Creator. Thus, he was there in existence before the world ever began. He's eternal. All three of those mention Jesus as being the eternal God. But John starts off his gospel with this. It's the first thing he mentions. So the thesis statement for the book is the word that was coming, the word was God. That's the thesis statement for this entire letter that he wrote. Did you catch there's no birth record? No, Jesus is eternal. You're not going to find a Christmas story in there. The only Christmas verse you're going to find in John is John chapter 1, verse 14, where we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's it. That's the whole Christmas story in, in one verse. God became flesh and dwelt with us. There you are. John's the one who puts it so succinctly. So John does not contain any genealogy. Why doesn't John have a genealogy of Jesus? Well, very easy. The, Jesus doesn't have a genealogy. Oh, Matthew, remember, focused on the, um, the genealogy of Jesus being the king. Luke emphasizes the human aspect. By the way, I didn't mention this, but did you catch this? How... And a lot of critics often point this out, and it puzzles Christians many times. How come um, the, 
after you get to David, the genealogy that you find in Matthew is different than the genealogy that you find in the book of Luke. There's a reason for this. Matthew's focusing on the kingship. He's a descendant of King Solomon, David's son. But in Luke, Luke has interviewed, he tells us that he went back and checked all the facts. He interviewed people. And um, early church writers tell us that one of the people he interviewed was Mary herself. And so he's got Mary's genealogy showing the human aspect. And he's not, though he's a descendant of David, he's through David's son, Nathan. So that's why the genealogies don't fit. You have Mary's in Luke. You have um, you have uh, Solomon and the other kings that you see um, in in Matthew. So John has no genealogy. God doesn't have one. He's always been there, even before there was time. Time is one of his creations. Also, John contains only seven miracles. Seven miracles each one providing evidence of the deity of Jesus. To make this really simple, one miracle really stands out, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Can you think of any miracle that God did more powerful outside of raising, you know, God raising him himself from the dead? Can you think of anything more powerful than the raising of Lazarus. That was the miracle that convinced many of the, of the Jewish leaders and Pharisees that he truly was God. So seven special miracles, that's it. You know there's no parables in John? No. John doesn't contain parables, human stories and stuff. He doesn't do this. He's focusing on the deity. He even tells us why he wrote it. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's focus is God. There's a God-man Messiah who's going to come and dwell with us. And that's what his whole focus is. And his key verse, like I just read, it's written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what John's gospel is all trying to put out. So, you catch it now? So when you start looking for a passage, you don't know which gospel to look for. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, all you got to do is just focus on what's this dealing with. If it's about kingship, that's the lion. That's Matthew. If it's about something Jesus did, you're probably going to find it more in with the ox in Mark. If it's talking about the human aspect, when Jesus was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was suffering in there, um, it, it, Luke tells us that his blood became like, uh, or his sweat became like blood. Actually, he's describing a medical condition called hematridosis that happens under great stress, higher stress than you would have having four exams in one day. Very extreme stress. The capillaries feeding the sweat glands break down and blood enters into the sweat gland, mixes with the sweat, and is deposited on the surface of the skin. That's hematridosis. And by the way, you have to be under tremendous stress for this to happen. Where did this take place? Luke tells us it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press or olive crush. That's where they would crush the olives to get the oil. Do you know, that's really interesting. A lot of people don't understand this, but olives, the, the olive oil is not in the fruit. It's in the seed. You've got to take the seeds of the olives, the pits, and crack them and crush them 
to get the oil out. The seed, in other words, has to go through great anguish and suffering, being crushed. Is not that exactly what Jesus went through uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he started becoming aware of all the sins of the world being dumped on him? Think about how bad you feel. Don't dwell on this, but think about how bad sometimes you have felt when you've knowingly sinned. Now, compound that for all the sins you ever did, but then compound that with all the people who have ever lived in all their sins. Put it on one person at one time. That's what you got with Jesus in the garden. It was crushing to him. It's an appropriate place. So he tells us the human aspect, Luke does. And then John, of course, the eagle, all about the deity. You want something about the deity of Christ, it's going to be found more having to do with John's gospel. Thus, the four Gospels are not four biographies, but four portraits of who Jesus is. Let me, let me give you a little quote here as I'm just finishing this off. This is out of a book called The New Testament by Louis Burkhoff. And he describes this. If you think I'm making all this up, it's not. This is, there's many books and many theologians have written on this. And Louis Burkhoff actually describes this very well, I think. Let me just finish with this. Matthew wrote for the Jews and characterized Christ as the great king of the house of David. Mark composed his gospel for the Romans and pictured the Savior as a mighty worker, triumphing over sin and evil. Luke, in writing his gospel, has in mind the needs of the Greeks and portrayed Christ as the perfect man, the universal Savior. And John, composing his gospel for those who already had a saving knowledge of the Lord and stood in need of a more profound understanding of the essential character of Jesus, emphasized the divinity of Christ, the glory that was manifested in his words. Each gospel is complete in itself and acquaints us with a certain aspect of the Lord's life. Yet, it is only the four old gospel that furnishes us with a complete and perfect image of him whom to know is eternal life. And it is only when we grasp the different features that are mirrored in the gospels and see how they blend harmoniously in that noblest of all lives, the life of Christ, that we have found the true harmony of the gospels. That's Louis Burkhoff, New Testament. Also, there's a great book if you want to get this. This is on uh, public domain. You can download it. It's by Arthur W. Pink, and I think it's called The Four Gospels. Um, and it describes this also very succinct. It's more of a pamphlet, a small little booklet, but it's great. And it's like I say, it's on public domain. Um, you can pull it off and you can read it. And he describes Arthur W. Pink was a theologian in 1900s, and he describes this very well also. So why are there four Gospels? The reason for four Gospels is to show the four aspects, the four portraits of the Messiah. They are not biographies. Why do some Gospels contain different stories and events that are not exactly like you find in one of the other Gospels? They differ because each writer is focusing on a certain portrait. They're paintings, a different portrait of Jesus as the Messiah. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this lesson, and I hope this has cleared up one of these problems that frequently come up, at least I have, with conversations of people, of why do these four Gospels, why uh, they are so, as they would often say, unreliable. No, they're not biographies, as they often portray 
their portraits. And I hope you see that. Study this. We just went through this briefly. Study this carefully. Look at the four Gospels and see how they picture what they are describing. It's beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've had, and I ask that you bless it to the people, and may your Spirit, Lord, continue to, to teach them on this and make this clear to them. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. Until we meet again, take care, and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.